You know, every whitewater river always has a section on it called the Narrows. It's where the riverbed constricts and the banks get closer and the river becomes more violent. Down through the canyon walls, the water flow descends and intensifies. And in a sense, this is what happens toward the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I call Matthew chapter 7 the Narrows. For Jesus is culminating his thoughts. He's summing up his message. He's calling for a decision. It's time now to make a choice. Thus we read our text beginning in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly They are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have not prophesied, have we not prophesied in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at His teaching. For He taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. People today like options. We no longer live in an either-or world. You know, there was a time when Americans drove either a Ford or a Chevy. Your ice cream was vanilla or chocolate. TV was ABC, CBS, or NBC. But no more. Today, there are more than 50 different nationwide television networks. Sold in America are 752 different models of cars and trucks. And Baskin-Robbins no longer offers 31 flavors. Just check their website. It's now over 50. What if your wife sent you down to the grocery store with a shopping list? Say Crest toothpaste, Campbell's soup, Tropicana orange juice, Cheerios, and honey, bring back some head and shoulder shampoo. Enough? Until you get there. And you start combing the shelves, 
and you find out there are now 27 different varieties of Crest toothpaste and 53 types of Campbell's soup and eight different sizes of Tropicana. And what have they done to Cheerios? Now there are all kinds of, 13 varieties. There's fruity Cheerios and honey nut Cheerios and apple cinnamon Cheerios and banana nut and frosted and chocolate and multigrain and multigrain with peanut butter and cinnamon burst. It's terrible what they've done to Cheerios. As well as 25 different types of head and shoulder shampoo. Everything from itchy scalp with eucalyptus to dry scalp care with almond oil. Oh, that's what I need, some almond oil. Have you ever been in line at a Starbucks and the guy in front of you tells the barista, make it a tall, half-calf, skinny soy latte at 120 degrees? And then you place your order. Uh, I'd like a cup of coffee. I mean, you're embarrassed by your naivety. Starbucks claims to offer its customers over 80,000 different drink combinations. Can you imagine? Oh, how we love our options. Even Christians today want multiple options. Open your Bible. Oh, but today you can read the KJV, and the new KJV, and the NAS, and the ESV, and RSV, and the new RSV, and the NIV, and the NLT, etc., etc., etc. Oh, come to church with me. You can come either Saturday night or Sunday morning, and you can attend at 7.45 or 9.30 or 11.15. And services, oh my, there's the contemporary service, and then there's the traditional service, and then there's the sunrise service, and then there's the family service. And we're having communion this morning, either regular or (laughs) gluten-free. Today we live among multiple options. It's reflected in all areas of society. Modern America has become multicultural. There are alternative lifestyles, and there are redefined families. And this shows up in religious beliefs. Modern morality and spirituality has become a smorgasbord. It's no longer about right and wrong and true and false. It's now take your pick. Be true to yourself. Find what's right for you. And oh, don't worry about sticking with it. If at some point your feelings change, then your beliefs can change with them. No biggie. Just shop around. Faith is about what fits. In fact, for the skeptical mind, there's deism or atheism. For the doubting do-gooder, there's humanism. For the environmentalist, there's pantheism. For the touchy-feely person, there's Eastern mysticism. For the power monger, there's occultism. For the militant mind, there's Islam. For the feminist mind, there's goddess worship. If you can't make up your mind, there's polytheism. And if no-ism does the trick, well, be eclectic. Take a little from here, a little from there. Build your own religion. Make a God in your image and in your likeness. Have your own set of rules. Call it Billism or Sallyism. But whatever you do, don't you dare expect Jesus to agree with such foolishness. Not after His words here in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't add Jesus to your buffet of belief. He refuses to be anybody's addendum. Jesus declares here in Matthew 7 verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way 
that leads to destruction. And there are many who go, by, go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. I'm afraid that in the ears of politically correct listeners, these are fighting words. Jesus runs roughshod over our society's staunchly held belief in tolerance and in pluralism. This is not an all roads lead to heaven. Jesus shocks and offends modern notions of open-mindedness when He trumpets, narrow is the gate. Hey, Jesus is cutting down our multiple choices. He's telling us there are just two gates, just two ways, just two crowds, and just two destinations. You either pass through a narrow gate or a wide one. You travel a broad, easy road or one that's lonely and difficult. You either blend in with the majority or you stick out in the minority. And in the end, you either live or die. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. Jesus is at the end of his sermon here. And like any good preacher, he's calling for his listeners to respond. He's laid out his manifesto. He's laid out what life is like in his kingdom. And now he challenges us to choose his way. And this one choice changes everything. For what you do with Jesus is the biggest decision you will ever make. There's a church in upstate New York, I'm sorry, upstate Michigan, that has a very steep gabled roof. The raindrops that land on this roof land side by side, and they roll off in one of two directions. Some of the raindrops slide down the mountain into tributaries that flow into the mighty Mississippi, which eventually spill into the Gulf of Mexico. Whereas other raindrops, often when they fall, they're separated by just inches. But those raindrops, they slip off the same roof, but they then go down the other side of the roof that pour into streams that then fill in to the Great Lakes and then eventually work their way to the Atlantic Ocean. It's amazing. Water pellets that fell side by side, inches apart, end up thousands of miles in different directions. Range trajectory was determined by where they came down on a single point. And my friends, this is also true for you and me. For where we spend eternity will determine on where we come down in regards to Jesus Christ. Our relationship with Jesus means oh so much. Well, here he makes our choices crystal clear. First, you've got to choose a gate. One is wide and the other is very narrow. You see, the wide gate is spacious enough for everyone to enter. You can bring all your baggage, in fact. There are no passport checks. There's no baggage limitations. In fact, the crowd presses toward this gate. Actually, you don't have to make a choice. You can just go with the flow. You can just get swept up in the crowd, never actually make a decision, and you'll end up stumbling through this wide gate. You know, it's a scary thought. It does not require a decision to go to hell. The in crowd is headed toward the wide gate. If you're just going with the flow, that's where you're headed. You know, when you think about it, sometimes all these multiple options are not really a good thing. You know, too many options sometimes can be frustrating and confusing. Sometimes I dread going out to eat with my family. 
knowing that we're going to spend 30 minutes trying to choose from all the restaurants in the area. It's as if they like the selection more than the meal. Come on, guys, please just pick one. You see, God never wanted His worshipers to be so frustrated or confused. Important issues need clarity. This is why in the Old Testament, Israel had just one temple and just one altar and just one priest. God centralized worship. And whenever His people tried to decentralize their worship and sacrifice on their own private altars, God considered it idolatry and He fought against such worship. This is also God's strategy in the New Testament. Again, God has sanctioned just one temple, the church, just one altar, the cross, and just one priest. And God is once again against worship in any other form. The New Testament is clear. In Acts 4 verse 12, Peter says of the name of Jesus, nor is there salvation in any other. In 1 Peter 2 verse 5, there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. In John 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And of course, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. God couldn't afford to let anyone muddy the water or frustrate the issue when it came to our salvation. So he made this one decision as straightforward as possible. You see, unlike the wide gate, you don't just get swept up in the crowd and get pushed through the narrow gate. No, the narrow gate is more like a turnstile. You can only pass one at a time. You don't go to heaven on someone else's coattails. Oh, a ticket to heaven is free, but it's good for only one admission. Each person has to step up and say yes to that ticket. The Greek word here translated narrow, as in the narrow gate, is the word stenos. It means to compress or constrict. Stenography is shorthand. It's like texting today, form of writing. And the way to heaven is also compressed. It's so narrow that all baggage is prohibited. You have to come just as you are, all by yourself, humble and naked and alone and honest. Your faith is solely in Christ's work and in God's grace. Jesus is this constricted narrow gate. And following Him leads us down a challenging path. Notice what Jesus tells us. Difficult is the way which leads to life. Realize the broad way, it's roomy and spacious. There are no curbs on this road. There are no stop signs. There's no speed limits. There are no boundaries or rules. Anything goes on the Broadway, and it's downhill all the way. C.S. Lewis once said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without guidelines. This is the Broadway. And Jesus is the difficult way. On this road, morals matter. Here, objective truth counts. There is a right and wrong. God's Word, not our whims, have the final say. Life is not just the path of least resistance. Convictions come before convenience. The Bible refers to this road as a race, as a climb, as a battle, as a voyage, as a course. There are few straightaways on this path where you can just kind of kick back and cruise. 
This life requires constant vigilance. You see, there are two gates and two ways and ultimately two destinations. Jesus tells us that the broad, easy way leads to destruction. But what did you expect? No lanes, no lines, no limits. There are bound to be crashes and losses of life on this road. The ultimate destruction will be hell itself, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Whereas following Jesus might make for a rocky road, but the destination is delightful. Heaven is ahead for those who follow down the difficult path. And realize this truth. Heaven is where the road goes. You need to remember this. Heaven is where the road goes. You see, there are folks today who enter the wide gate. And they travel the broad road. And they still hope to go to heaven. Don't be so foolish. You don't take 75 north and get to Orlando. You go to where the road goes. And you end up on the road, with, you end up where the road you're traveling is actually headed. And it's not the broad way that's pointed toward heaven. It's the narrow gate. It's the difficult way. Open your Bible. Study the map. Make sure the road you're on is headed where you want to end up. Heaven is where the road goes. Ironic, a recent Gallup poll revealed that among Americans, 54% of the population believe in a literal hell, but only 4% believe that they're going to go there. You know, Jesus would disagree with those results. Sadly, he tells us, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in. You see, there are two gates and there are two roads and there are two destinations and there are two group of travelers. You see, the broad way is brimming with people. Lots of people on the broad way. It's kind of like Facebook. You know, you got 2,000 friends, but probably only three people who loan you 20 bucks. I mean, there's always a big crowd on the broad way. Hey, hell is like a college cafeteria. It's packed with folks who hate the food. It's the same old, same old every day. It's noisy and crowded and hot, and you have to fend for yourself. Whereas heaven is like that little boutique restaurant off campus. It's cozy and comfortable. The food is delicious. It's cooked to order. The service makes you feel like family. And since it's hard to get to, there's never a crowd. I hope you don't fall for the old lie. Since everybody else is doing it, it must be right. Oh, I hope you don't fall for that. Once after a huge earthquake rocked Southern California, W.C. Fields was asked why he wasn't going to move. Fields replied, we're crazy to live here. But there sure are a lot of us. Foolishly, people find security in the crowd. There's a perceived safety among numbers. And this is the attitude of folks who are traveling down this broad way. Whereas life with Jesus, life on this difficult way, can get terribly lonely. Often a Christian's friends are few. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus was encouraging His disciples when He said to them, Do not fear, little flock. In the original language, it's literally micro-flock. And at times, the crowd that's following Jesus shrinks down to microscopic size. You see, there's lots of company on the Broadway. 
It's a party bus. Whereas follow Jesus. And though the views are great, and though the destination's unbeatable, nevertheless, the road can get bumpy. And at times you ride alone. And quite frankly, our numbers may shrink further in the days ahead. Stand up for biblical values today. Stand up for Christ in the workplace or at school. And you may not be as popular afterwards. Go into your workplace tomorrow and affirm the Bible's teaching that homosexuality is a sin. Or that all religions don't lead to God. Or that husbands should be the head of their homes. Or that apart from Jesus, man is destined to hell. Or that Islam is a lie. Go on the record with these issues. And you might lose your job. Or your scholarship. Or the esteem of your peers. At least folks who dare to obey are going to grow fewer in the days ahead. Ninety years ago, British pundit G.K. Chesterton wrote, You are free in our time to say that God does not exist. You are free to say that He exists and is evil. You are free to say that He would like to exist if He could. You may talk of God as a metaphor or a mystification. You may water Him down with gallons of long words or boil Him to the rags of metaphysics. And it is not merely that nobody punishes, but nobody protests. But if you speak of God as a fact, as a thing like a tiger, as a reason for changing one's conduct, then the modern world will stop you somehow if it can. Sadly, Chesterton's words are ringing more and more true every day. Choose to enter the narrow gate. Travel down the difficult way. And you'll experience stretches where you're hated. Long stretches when you walk alone. I believe it's time for all Christians to count the cost. Will we remain committed to the narrow gate, the difficult way, life everlasting, the few who find it? You see, serious times call for serious people. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the Indians of Ecuador, once prayed this, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a mild post on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Do we dare pray that same prayer? Lord, make me a fork in the road. A point where choices are made. You see, there are two gates and two ways and two destinations and two crowds. And then there are also two teachers. Verse 15 warns us. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The truth is, not everybody who claims to speak for God does. There are false teachers today spreading false doctrine. In World War II, the Nazis, they counterfeited $630 million worth of pound notes. They did so in an effort to sink the British economy. And likewise, the devil will use, not bogus bills, but bogus brothers, counterfeit Christians to try to sink the church. Beware of beauty that's only fleece deep. Realize Satan's strategy. He's created a world system that's hostile to the cause of Christ. But if he's unable to intimidate us, he'll next try to infiltrate us. Satan thinks, if I can't beat them, I'll join them. And thus he sends in sheep, or he sends in wolves who are dressed in sheep's clothing. 
slick talkers, supposedly with a word from God to deceive folks, to rip off their blessings in Christ. I, I like how Jude 4 puts it. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Creepy people creeping into the church. A guy slips into the singles group and claims, Oh, I love this body. Well, you need to make sure it's the body of Christ he's talking about and not the female bodies in the fellowship. There's an elder who gets a little pushy or a little greedy. Well, watch him. Watch him carefully. Look under his fleece for his fangs. Don't be gullible. Everybody who comes in the name of God is not from God. Remember little Red Riding Hood, how naive that poor girl was? She missed some real red flags, didn't she? Grandma, what big eyes you have. The supposed grandma replied, the better to see you with, my dear. She should have been paying attention to those big eyes. Grandma, what big arms you have. The better to hug you with, my dear. I mean, that sister should have gotten suspicious. Grandma's got flabby arms, not big arms. Oh, Grandma, what big teeth you have. And then the line, the better to eat you with, my dear. Little Red Riding Hood was so naive, she deserved to be eaten. And here's the lesson for us. If a person, I don't care if she looks like a grandma or slick preacher. If he looks like a wolf and smells like a wolf and talks like a wolf, even if he's got 30,000 people coming to his church, you better start running because he's probably a wolf. In fact, Jesus tells us how to discern a false teacher. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Fruits are the byproduct of the life of the tree. Thus, apple trees produce apples. Pecan trees produce pecans. A life rooted in God will yield godly character. You know, a lot of so-called Christians and even Christian ministries are like Christmas trees. They're beautifully decorated. But understand... Ornaments are not the same thing as fruit. Ornaments hang from a limb, but they're not part of the tree. They're just decoration. Fruit springs from the life of the tree. That's what you want to look for in a Christian ministry. Fruit, not ornaments. Thus, when a man creeps into the church, we need to ask to see his fruits. We need to be fruit inspectors. And even if it takes some time, we need to watch and wait. Don't listen to what a person says until you examine how that person lives. What's the fruit being generated in their speech, and in their conduct, and in their marriage, and in their relationship with their kids, and even in their work among the community? For Jesus tells us in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I mean, anyone can talk the talk, but words alone don't make a good witness. Can you walk the walk? He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? 
cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's a person who was used by Jesus and yet never knew him. He even possessed spiritual gifts, even miracle powers. Think of a counterfeit $100 bill. While in circulation, that bogus bill might do a lot of good. I mean, he can put shoes on a child's feet. It can put food at a family's table. It can even help a church pay its bills. But at some point, that counterfeit bill is going to get exposed. Oh, while in circulation, the funny money might have done some good. But that won't save it when it finally gets uncovered. And likewise, one day, Jesus Christ is going to yank all of the counterfeit pastors and prophets out of circulation. He might have used them for a season, for He loves God's people. But He never, never, ever approved of their methods. And in that day, Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus instructs us that our multiple option society, that there are only two gates, only two ways, two destinations, two crowds, two teachers, and then... Just two foundations. And realize your life is being built on a foundation. The footings of your life are your beliefs and your habits and your practices. Right now, your life might not look a lot different than the lives of other people that are building around you. The life that your neighbor's building. I mean, the view from the street level may be very similar. You both go to work, you both mow the lawn, you both attend church, you both play with your kids. But according to Jesus, it's when the rain falls and when the wind howls and when the storm blows. That's when the foundation of your life gets revealed. That's when the real differences are seen. Notice how Jesus explains it in verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Notice what constitutes strong footings. It's hearing these sayings of mine and doing them. Here's a man who built his life and his family on the truths of Jesus. You know, throughout the scripture, the rock is a symbol of Jesus. Messiah is referred to as a stone as a tried stone, as a precious cornerstone, as a rock cut out without hands. Whereas sand is a symbol of mankind. Why? Because sand is porous and shifty and unstable. It conforms to whatever mold it's poured. I hate to inform you of this. There's a little bit of sandy in all of you. I mean, do you base your decisions on God's timeless truth? Or do you take your cues from talk radio? Think about where you base your assumptions and what you base your life on. Is it talk radio? Is it some half-cocked celebrity and what he says? I mean, are you living your life based on your favorite beer commercials? Or the redneck wisdom you get at work? Or some best-selling paperback? Think about what people base their lives on. It's time to abandon shifting philosophies 
and fluctuating opinions and grainy perspectives. It's time for us to build our lives on the timeless truths of God's Word. Twenty years ago, news commentator Ted Koppel, he spoke at the Duke University graduation ceremonies. He made an observation that is as true today as it was then. He said, we've spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of a slime by searching for truth in moral absolutes. But today, in place of truth, we've discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we've substituted moral ambiguity. We now communicate with everyone and say absolutely nothing. Our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. You see, here's what we've done today. We have substituted facts for truth. I mean, you can Google an endless stream of data and still not have any discernment. You, you can have data, but when it comes to discernment, you're clueless. This is why we need God's wisdom. Recall, Jesus was a carpenter. He knew the value of a structure's foundation. It's been said, in building anything, you should never go up until you first dug deep. And this principle stands true for our spiritual lives. Have you thoroughly examined why you do what you do? Have you made sure that there's a biblical basis for every assumption, every identity, every habit and hobby, every precept and perspective and position? You know, this past April, I taught at a pastor's conference over in Italy. While there, Kathy and I, we got to visit the little town of Pisa and its famous 800-year-old leaning tower. This 14,500-ton tower, it slumps 17 inches off center. And it's because the original architects, they failed to build its foundation on the bedrock. Instead, they built it on the soil, soil that has now compressed. And as a result, the tower tips just a little further every year. And this is similar to the problem Jesus mentions here in verse 26. He says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Realize that in Israel there is a rainy season and there's a dry season. You could build a house in the dry season and there'd be no problem. But then the rainy season comes and the flash floods hit. And you realize that what you thought was a good lot was really just a sandy gully that filled up with water runoff. All of a sudden your house is collapsing, collapsing and it's moving off its foundation. Now you've got serious problems. And this is the man who hears the words of Jesus. And rather than apply his truths and obey them and build his life around them, he takes it all for granted. He just nods in agreement, but he fails to take it to heart. This man figures all is fine. Oh, this doesn't apply to me. Call him gullyable. For when the storm rages, he realizes his tragic mistake. When Beth Crow purchased her house, she had no reason to believe that she was buying any trouble. She lived in the house for seven years until she noticed a problem. At first, mortar started falling from her field stone chimney, I mean fireplace. Then over time, her chimney started to sink. Then the basement wall cracked. 
Then the back wall of the house began to crumble. She had lived in the house for 10 years when she discovered that it had been built on a garbage dump. The foundation rested on 55-gallon drums and old tires and hot water heaters and burnt-out boards and debris. Her house became uninhabitable. Beth had to bulldoze, clean up, and rebuild. And this is what happens when a man builds his life on human wisdom and godless philosophy. For a time, there may be, it may all go well, but eventually that foundation is going to give way and that life is going to crumble. Notice Jesus' final verdict in verse 28. And great was its fall. Boy, I don't want that to ever be said over my life. Great was its fall. You remember those three little porkers? The first two pigs, they built houses out of straw and sticks. But then the big bad wolf, he huffed and puffed and he blew the house down. Now the version I used to read to my kids, the sanitized version for little children, said that the foolish pigs escaped to their wise brother's brick house. But did you know that some of the original versions of the story the real truth versions of the story said that the wolf ate the two pigs. That's what it said. Great was their fall. And this is the plight of the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, not the rock. Have you storm-proofed your life? Have you wolf-proofed your life? Are you building on shifting sand or on solid rock? Again, Jesus uses only one criteria here to distinguish between the man who survived and the man who was destroyed. He says that the wise man heard his sayings and did them. He listened and then he acted on it and did something about it. Once there was a pastor, he took over a church in a logging town. He was out in the woods hunting one day when he noticed several of his church members. They were stealing some of their competitors' logs. They were sawing the brands off the ends of the logs, taking them as their own. Well, that Sunday, the pastor decided to preach a sermon. He entitled, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's property. Well, perpetrators congratulated him on the best sermon they'd ever heard. And yet on Monday morning, they were right back out in the woods stealing logs. Thus, the next week, the pastor preached again, and he titled his sermon, Thou shalt not steal. But again, everyone liked the sermon until Monday morning rolled around and once again they were out there stealing logs. Well, the third week he preached another sermon. This one he entitled, Thou shalt not cut branded ends off someone else's logs. Finally, they got the point. Hey, some people are expert listeners, but they never act on what they hear. Hey, never forget this truth. Judas heard every one of Jesus' sermons. But it did him absolutely no good. A wise person hears these sayings and does them. Well, verse 28 wraps up Jesus' sermon. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one having authority and not as a scribe. The Jewish rabbis, they lacked authority. They couched their words as suggestions. They quoted each other to try to validate themselves. In essence, their teaching was lame. 
On the other hand, Jesus' words were weighty. He spoke with an authority that no one had ever heard before. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, His words were new and fresh and alive and powerful and heavenly. He spoke the words of God. And here's the question for us today. What has Jesus been saying to your heart that you need to apply to your life? Will you hear the words of Jesus and do them? One author writes, throughout the Bible, when God asked a man to do something, methods, means, materials, and specific directions were always provided. The man just had one thing to do, obey. Have you entered the narrow gate? 